Abraham Lincoln and his wife Mary were the parents of four boys. Only one, Robert, lived beyond his 18th birthday. Author Jason Emerson spent nearly a decade traveling across the United States, visiting and researching in numerous archives, museums, and historic places. He was studying the 82-plus years in the life of Robert Lincoln. Writer Emerson focused on the president's oldest son as a Union soldier, a minister to Great Britain, a U.S. Secretary of War, and the president of the Chicago-based Pullman Car Company. Jason Emerson is an independent historian who has been writing about the Lincoln family for over 20 years. Jason Emerson, when was the first time you can remember having any interest in Robert Lincoln? Boy, I think, um, you know, I was a park ranger at the Abraham Lincoln home out in Springfield, Illinois. And um, obviously, that was the first time I learned about Robert. But I first became interested in who he was and learning more about him, I think, when I visited his home, Hill Dean, which is in Manchester, Vermont, and is currently a private historic site. My uh, supervisor at Lincoln's home uh, had visited there many times, and she told me I had to check it out. And and it's it's a 25-room Georgian Revival mansion, so it's a much different place than the, the one-room log cabin in which his father grew up in. And um, while I was there, I bought the only biography of Robert ever written up to that point, which was... Um, Robert Todd Lincoln, A Man in His Own Right by John Goff. And uh, that was written in the 60s. That was only about 230 pages long. Uh, Robert's grandchildren were alive then, and, and they did not allow the author to look at, at any of their family papers. So he did the best he could with what he had. But after reading that book, I, w- I was hooked. And, um, you know, I love aspects of history that are not written about a thousand times, that are not well known. I like digging up unknown, interesting things. And uh, in Robert, I found basically just a goldmine of amazing things that nobody really knew, or or if they knew about it, they, what they knew was actually incorrect. One of the things you write about in your um, notes and your acknowledgments is that you worked at Bistro Betham in Fredericksburg, yeah. serving tables to help pay the mortgage while you wrote the book. What year was that? <laughs> Oh, let's see. That was, um, boy, I worked there from about 2003 to about 2008 or so, I think it was. Um, yeah, when um, yeah, I lived in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and I worked, I was a journalist, and I worked up in D.C., so I had to take the train every day, which was about, from door to door, it was almost two hours each way, morning and night. And uh, my wife was a teacher, and um you know she was pregnant with our with our daughter and we decided that uh you know it would cost more for childcare than i would make at the job plus traveling back and forth and getting home at 7 at night so so i decided to stay home and focus on my writing and then at night i worked at this uh fancy bistro where the tips were good and um so make a little extra money that way and that's when i wrote um you know a number of books was during those years that i stayed home with my daughter. And those books were about what? Um, mostly Mary Lincoln, actually. Um, Rob, My Robert Lincoln book was the first book contract I ever got, but it was actually my third book published because it was 
while I was researching Robert, um, particularly when I was at his house at Hildeen, um, and I, no other historian had ever looked through the house when I was there. That was one of the great experiences of my life as a historian. But while I was there, I found letters referring to uh, letters that Mary Lincoln, Robert's mother, had written while she was in the sanitarium, or insane asylum, as some people call it, in 1875. And those letters were very famous in Lincoln circles because everybody knew that they existed, but no one had ever found them. And people had been trying to find them for 80 years or so. And um, I found letters about those letters, which led me on a five-month path. And then I ended up finding the letters. So I wrote my my first book to be published was called The Madness of Mary Lincoln. And that is a kind of an examination of Mary's mental health from childhood to death. And it is based on those letters that I found. You know, so I took a took a break from Robert for that. <laughs> you you know that it's hard to break into the fraternity of Lincoln specialists, and you yes. call yourself an independent historian. So, how big a risk was it when you started out looking at either Mary Lincoln or Robert Lincoln or Abraham Lincoln, knowing what you were faced with with the crowd that writes about him? <laughs> It was difficult. It was definitely difficult. I had done a couple of, I published a few articles. I knew a few people um, by being a park ranger. But um, yeah, I mean, when the word came out that I found these letters, and it was, um, it actually, it was published in the Springfield newspaper, and the Associated Press picked it up. Um, It was originally released in an article I wrote for American Heritage magazine. And all the Lincoln scholars they were just, um, yeah, they didn't believe it. They're like, who's this kid who thinks he found these letters? I mean, because at the time I was in my, I think I was in my late 20s. Um, and then, you know, they didn't believe it. But then when it was proven that what I found was authentic, uh, then they were all mad. They're like, who is this kid who thinks he can come in and find these letters that none of us could find? Um, and so it's interesting. You know, the world of Lincoln is, it is cutthroat. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of nice people and there's a lot of people who, are out for themselves in their own work. I mean, I do a lot of research. I look at other historians' papers that are in the Library of Congress, some of the great Lincoln people from the you know, the early 20th century. And it's amazing. When you look through all their papers, I remember I found one somewhere. I don't even remember. Um, one of them said, hey, I just found this letter Lincoln wrote. No one's ever seen it before. It is a gem. And you know what? I, I'm working on this other thing. I can't use it. Hey, do you want it? <laughs> and, and I remember finding that and thinking, nobody would do that today. They would keep it for themselves. Uh, I shouldn't say nobody, but I'd be highly surprised if people did it. Um, and so it was tough, you know. And then, you know, everybody hates Robert Lincoln and the Lincoln community because of the misinformation out there about him. So a lot of them didn't take my work terribly seriously at first until they saw I mean, my book, I found every day, I found something new and unknown and unpublished about Abraham Lincoln, about Mary Lincoln, about the Civil War, about life in the White House, the presidency. And Robert knew every president after his father, so about all these other presidents and great events. And and so, you know, that was tough to break through. And then Mary Lincoln is tough. I've written five books about her. And, um, you know, in the field of Mary, if people care about her at all, either they just absolutely despise her as just a horrible, horrible person, or they think that she is faultless goddess who is better than her husband himself. And of course, you know, the truth is in the middle, as it always is, which is where I I bring my books down the middle. Um, People don't always like that. But, you know, I I believe that you, you follow the facts to the conclusions to which they lead you. 
and a lot of people, particularly in the Mary Lincoln world, they have conclusions, and then they find and mold the facts to the conclusions that they want to see out there. Um, and so Mary's a very controversial figure, and so a lot of people still, um, you know, they think that I hate her for some reason just because I want to tell the truth about who she was, because the truth is more interesting anyways. And she was a fascinating woman with, with her own flaws and faults, as was Robert, as was Abraham. So that's what makes history interesting, is to, to see the real person, not to see the fake person that people want to believe in. Where do you live today? I live uh, just outside of Syracuse, New York. I'm uh, originally from Rochester, New York, but I've uh, traveled a lot. I lived in Virginia, you know, was out in Illinois. I worked at uh, Gettysburg for a while, um, but um, now I'm outside of Syracuse and uh, just uh, recently got married and recently bought a new house uh, in the town of Baldwinsville, which is a lovely town. And so, yeah, it's it's very nice here. I, you know, I miss the warm weather of Virginia, <laughs> especially during the winter. But uh, there's a lot of great history around here, which I love. How much education do you have? I I have a bachelor's degree. I started my master's degree. I took I think I took three courses in English, which my degree is in uh, writing and composition. Um, and then I switched over to history in graduate school. And then I took three courses in history and then my daughter was born and I was going to George Mason university, which was an hour drive and, uh, plus working at the restaurant plus, you know, home with my daughter all day. And after she was born, yeah, I was in a class and, and I got an A in the course, but I, I felt like I didn't, I don't remember a thing from that course. And, uh, you know, to me, I, it sounds silly, but I want to learn stuff. I don't really care that I got an A. I feel like I didn't learn anything. So I'm like, oh, you know, when my daughter goes to kindergarten, I will go back and finish my master's degree. And so uh, 18 years later, <laughs> I still haven't done that. <laughs> go to Robert uh, Lincoln for a second. Uh, yeah. W what was the first thing you learned about him that uh, surprised you? You know, that's an easy one. Sometimes questions like that are difficult. But um, the first thing I remember that surprised me was when I learned that the Republican Party tried five times to get Robert Lincoln to run for president. And at first it was just because of his name, because his father was Abraham Lincoln. But as Robert grew older and had more experience, as um, you know, he was one of the biggest lawyers in the Midwest, he lived in Chicago, served as Secretary of War, Minister to Great Britain, President of the Pullman Car Company, among numerous business interests. He was primarily, a, he was a lawyer, but primarily a businessman in later life. And so at first, people wanted him for his name. And then later, they wanted him for what a um, responsible, respectable man he was, who also had the name Lincoln. And, um, you know, it was funny because the first couple times, as I opened the book with my book, Giant in the Shadows, in 1888, Robert was in serious danger of being nominated for the presidency by the Republican Party, which he wanted nothing to do with. But, you know, back then, uh, it was a duty. And if, if people, if you were nominated, you accepted that duty and you ran and you did your best. Uh, but Robert was able to thwart those ambitions of other people. Um, and so, yeah, when I found that out, especially one great fact was in 1888, I found this fascinating that, uh, you know, the Republicans had lost in 84 to Grover Cleveland, the first time they had lost uh, since uh, Lincoln was elected. And so the party was trying to figure out how, how do we win the White House back? And they thought, 
what are the biggest names in the Republican Party? Lincoln and Grant. So they came up with what they called the father-son ticket, and they wanted to run Robert Lincoln for president and Frederick Grant for vice president. Uh, Frederick was, of course, Ulysses S. Grant's son, and he was Secretary of State of New York at the time. And but then uh, you know Grant he lost his bid for re-election for Secretary of State, and Robert wanted nothing to do with it, so that that idea fell apart. But um, that was one of many ideas that year that Robert had to uh, resist. What was his relationship with his father Abraham? This is one of the one of the things I think is most interesting that I discovered. Um, his relationship was very close. Robert's reputation is that. You know, he knew nothing about his father. He cared even less. He didn't care about the presidency, the war, the White House, nothing. And that he, you know, he resented his father. Robert was, you know, self-made millionaire in later life. So the, the theory is, oh, he resented his father. He was embarrassed by his poverty, by his lack of formal education. Uh, but that, was, that is not true at all. Um, Robert and his father were incredibly close. You know, as a child, so Robert was the oldest, and then his brother... Eddie died when Eddie was four, so then Robert was the only child again for another year or two until Willie came along, and then by the time of you know the Lincoln-Douglas debates, um, the presidency, Robert was in his late teens, early twenties, basically a young adult, and so one thing I found that was fascinating was Robert was you know he was in Harvard College at the time of Lincoln's presidency which is why people say, oh, he doesn't know anything about his father, and he really didn't care because he was busy. But that's not true. Robert visited the White House all the time, like almost every weekend, every holiday. He was always there. And I discovered he was actually his father's confidant. Uh, his father talked to him about major, major events, like um, the cabinet crisis of 1862, um, the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Hampton Roads Peace Conference, and... Um, Robert once wrote to a friend, you know, people always wanted him to write, write a book, write articles about your father, which he always said no. And at one point he said that, um, saying about how close he was to his father, someone asked him, you know, why didn't you write it down? And Robert said, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great regret to me that I didn't write these things down because on several occasions my father and his desire to unburden himself to someone in whom he could have entire confidence talked to me about the conditions of things which are very much troubling him, and I, I wish I had written those down. Um, but actually, Robert did write all those down. He just wrote them in letters over numerous years, and those letters are scattered across the U.S., which is why it took me, you know, uh, this book took me nearly 10 years to do, because I had a lot of research and a lot of traveling to do to find all these things. So, But um, no, their, their relationship was, was very close, despite what um, some people have written. You point out that he was around or near three presidential assassinations. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, that's one of, one of my favorite things to do is to debunk erroneous historical myths. <laughs> and one of my favorites is that Robert Lincoln was present at three presidential assassinations. Uh, that's not true. The truth is fascinating enough, but he wasn't there. So he was not at Ford's Theater when his father was killed. But, of course, he was at the Peterson House when his father died. He was present when uh, President Garfield was shot at the railroad station in 1881. Robert, who was then Secretary of War, he was about 40 feet away when Garfield got shot. 
And then he was basically he and Secretary of State James G. Blaine, they ran the government for months after Garfield got shot, more or less. People don't really know that. But now when McKinley got shot at the Pan Am Exposition in Buffalo, this is the biggest one. Uh, there's, I mean, you can, there's scads of books and articles that say Robert was there. Either he was on the stage with McKinley or he was somewhere in the crowd. But actually, Robert was, was not even in Buffalo. He was on the train going to Buffalo. He was with his family to visit the exposition. He hadn't been invited to meet the president or to participate in any political things. He was just going to enjoy it. And when he got to the station in Buffalo, um, at this time he was Pullman car president. So when they pulled in, a Pullman um, assistant or executive was waiting for him and said the president had been shot. So Robert immediately went to the house. So, um, and then there is, you know, Robert does have a connection to, <clears throat> excuse me, the fourth president, <clears throat> assassinated President John F. Kennedy, because Robert's grave is within sight of Kennedy's grave in Arlington National Cemetery. Well, you also write about that and his son, Jack, Abraham Lincoln II. What's the story around him being buried there when the rest of his family's in Springfield, Illinois? Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, yeah, so Jack was Robert's um, second of his three children. Uh, yeah, his name was Abraham Lincoln II, but the Lincoln family loved nicknames. Everybody had a nickname, so they called him Jack. And, um, you know, he was apparently just kind of the second coming of Abraham Lincoln. He was brilliant, but he was sympathetic, empathetic, uh, hard worker, honest to a fault. And uh, Robert, of course, had great hopes for Jack. And Jack, when uh, Robert was minister to Great Britain in uh, the late 1880s, early 1890s, Jack had a, a carbuncle, or what's called a growth, under his arm. And um, the doctors basically killed him. They to, to heal him, they kept cutting it open to bleed it. And what started as, you know, the size of a quarter ended up being like five inches long wound, and he basically got blood poisoning and died. So Jack was buried in um, the Lincoln tomb, actually, in Springfield for a number of years. And when Robert died, he fully expected that he would be buried in the Lincoln tomb with his father, mother, and three brothers, and his son. And his wife, also uh, Mary Harlan Lincoln, was expected to be there as well. And so when Robert died in uh, 1926... That's what everyone expected. And he was temporarily buried in the cemetery, right, adjacent to his property in Vermont, because it was, um, you know, they were just waiting for things to, you know, the funeral and everything. And, and Robert's wife, uh, I found a letter she wrote, in which she was a very, very religious woman. And she said that, uh, you know, she had been praying on this. And she decided that, that her beloved husband would not be buried in Springfield because he was his own great man. And he deserved his own place in the sun, not in the shadow of his father. And so his wife decided to have him buried in Arlington, which he was, um, she was allowed to do because he, Robert had served in the Civil War, but, and he was Secretary of War. And so she did that. And um, as you can imagine, the entire country was shocked and the people of Illinois were outraged. And then to make that worse, um, a few years after Robert was buried there, Mary had her son, Jack, um, exhumed from the Lincoln tomb and then moved to Arlington as well. And uh, she did that because the Lincoln tomb needed repairs. And so 
it was the perfect time since construction was already ongoing. She wouldn't be disturbing anything if she had his casket taken up and removed, so she buried Jack there. And that's interesting if you look at newspapers at that time. Um, people were furious, you know. They called it like she was desecrating the Lincoln tomb and desecrating the family. But but I admire her, her decision that because, you know, as I think it's pretty clear if you read my book about Robert, even the title, Giant in the Shadows, I think he was he was a great man, and uh, I think he did deserve his own place in the sun because people do recognize who he was, and and they do recognize the fact that he's not in Lincoln's tomb, his father's tomb, I should say. If we would have followed you around when you started your chase uh, after Abraham Lincoln and the stories, where would that have started, and how many places did you go? <laughs> wow, oh boy, I went all over the place. Um, you know, obviously the the biggest repository of of Lincoln research is in Springfield, Illinois. Um, and then the second largest is in the Library of Congress, among with, you know, everything in the Library of Congress, you know, the majority of my research was in those two places. But, um, you know, there, there are archives all over the country that have letters to or from Robert Lincoln, or, you know, to or from people he corresponded with. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he knew every president after his father. And so he has letters in, I think, probably every collection of presidential papers between uh, Andrew Johnson and at least uh, Harding or Coolidge. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of papers in Chicago where Robert lived. Um, you know, boy, where did I go? I went to yeah, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, Virginia, New York, Vermont, um, Iowa, because the, the Harlan Lincoln house is out there where the Harlan family lived. There are some things out there. Um, How did people treat you in the libraries and research centers uh, when you walked through the door? Did you have any credentials, and did they know who you were? And if they didn't, uh, how did they treat you? Oh, everybody was was very nice, very respectful. Um, You know, nobody knew who I was. Well, eventually they did because I spent so many years doing this, but... um, no, they were, everybody was wonderful. And, and actually, uh, everybody in every place I went, probably nearly everyone, was fascinated by what I was doing because it wasn't the typical Abraham Lincoln book. I mean, you know, Lincoln is, I believe, the third most written about person in, in world history. And, you know, there's tens of thousands of books about him, and obviously there's a lot of repetition. So when I would tell people I'm working on Robert or Mary or, um, you know, one of my books is called Lincoln the Inventor, Abraham Lincoln is the only president to hold a patent, and my book is the only book ever written about it. So, you know, telling people that or what I was working on, they were, they were fascinated because these were were papers and archives and collections that they'd never really went to before because no one else had written about these things, really. Mary Lincoln and her relationship with Robert Lincoln. <laughs> That's another great question. Um, also very close relationship. I, I wrote an article once in which I argue that their relationship was arguably closer than Mary's relationship to her husband was, because Robert was always there for Mary. He was the oldest child. When Eddie died, you know, Abraham Lincoln, he went back out on the judicial circuit a few weeks after Eddie died, but Robert was home, and he was Mary's confidant and, and best friend. And all the time, and they loved a lot of the same things. They loved nice clothing. They loved 
nice culture. They loved music. They, they actually took piano lessons together. They, they loved French. Mary taught Robert French because she was fluent in it. They loved literature, the same kind of books. And during the war, when Robert was in college, when he would come home to visit, he and his mother would constantly travel, go shopping. Um, they were always together. And their relationship was as tight as that relationship could be until... Uh, after the assassination, Mary started having worse and worse mental illness symptoms. And at that point, Robert was considered the head of the house under the Victorian you know, social mores of the time. And so it was his job to protect her from herself and other people, which led him to have her committed in 1875. And part of Mary's um, issue was, was you know, paranoia and um, feelings of... of uh, victimhood and that everyone is after her. So she thought that Robert was after her money, which he wasn't. But And so after that incident, they did not speak for five years because she blamed him for everything that happened. They did eventually rekindle their relationship before Mary died. But uh, up until the insanity period, um, they had an incredibly close relationship. Was she in those, those three years she spent in Europe? Was that during that period that they had no relationship or was it another period? Well, she spent. She went to Europe in. Um, it was 1869, right after Robert got married, uh, and she was there until 1871. She and Tad were there, and they came back to America because Tad missed his brother. Uh, Robert had had his first child, whose name was also Mary, and Tad wanted to see them. He wanted to be back in America, so they came back, and then Tad died, uh, and then Mary. Um, then she was basically on her own. And she went back to Europe in 1876 after she was declared sane by a jury trial. And she was there for four years. And, um, yeah, she was, um, you know, she loved to travel, so she would travel. She spent a lot of time in Germany and France and in uh, Italy and a little bit of time in England. And so, yeah, the, the second time she was in Europe, she did not speak to Robert once. You say in the book that... Abraham Lincoln gave $36,000 in those days money to each Tad, his wife, and his son, Robert. Is that accurate? And how much money is that, 36000 in 1865? Uh, well, you know, actually, Abraham Lincoln died. Um, he did not have a will when he died. And so... Um, Robert called or telegrammed uh, David Davis, who was one of Abraham Lincoln's closest friends. He was his campaign manager in 1860. And he was a man whom, whom Robert later said that, uh, said, after my father died, I turned to him as a second father, which he was until he died. And so David Davis became the administrator of the estate, and it took him a couple of years to straighten it out. And so under the law, Mary, Robert, and Tad all got equal shares. Um, and so that is correct. And so, yeah, 36000 each. I mean, yeah, the estate was worth, uh, you know, a little over 100000 by the time it was um, finished up and uh, probated. Um, you know, I don't, I don't recall how much that would be each, but I would say at least, you know, half, maybe half a million in today's money. I mean, I, I don't recall if you <laughs> multiply it by, I think you multiply it by 100 or something, but it's a lot of money, a lot of money. And, um, you know, 
a lot of people forget that, uh, you know, Mary, one reason people disliked Mary so much was because she went around begging the country for money, saying, I'm a widow, I don't have any money. But when the word came out that Lincoln's estate was worth $100,000 in that money back then, um, you know, everyone was furious at her for begging for money when she was already rich. And um, and so likewise, you know, Robert, um, he was a lawyer and he was, he was not wealthy for many years, but eventually he, he earned his wealth. Um, but he did start with a, a comfortable nest egg there as a young man. You brought up somebody that I, I gather if we asked the question, people on the streets, they'd never heard of him. But he had a major role in American history, Dave, David Davis. Um, yes. What, first of all, about David Davis, you mentioned that he was his campaign manager in 1860 ended up on the Supreme Court, ended up as a United States senator, ended up playing a major role in the Garfield election. Um, I mean, the uh, not the Rutherford B. Hayes election. But um, what role did he play in the papers of Abraham Lincoln and his advice to son Robert? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, Robert, after the assassination, you know, Robert um, was – again, the head of the household. And so it was his job to take care of his father's affairs. And so he immediately um, contacted uh, the secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, John Nicolay and John Hay, who were also Robert's friends. And he asked them to box up everything in his father's office, and they shipped everything to Bloomington, Illinois, where David Davis lived, and they put it all in Davis's bank vault. And, it, and that's where it stayed. And for, boy, almost 10 years. And Robert, you know, he was not sure what to do. Should he give, because immediately historians, writers, journalists, everybody wanted access to those papers. And Robert wasn't sure, should he give access or should he not? And so he asked David Davis for his opinion. And Davis said, well, you know, first you got to go through it and see what's in there. And, you know, back then in Victorian days, people were very, you know, very uh, circumspect about allowing people to look through private papers because you know if there were if there were letters with negative things written about someone back then you didn't want those letters out because you didn't want to offend people and so robert always told everyone he said listen i'm not going to do anything with the papers until i look through them and so that was his answer to every historian and uh, ultimately robert decided that uh, he didn't really want to let anybody look at them, because if he let one person, he had to let everyone, and he didn't want to do that, and Davis agreed with him. And so Robert decided to let Nicolay and Hay write, they wanted to do a biography of Abraham Lincoln, which they did in 10 volumes, and they, Robert gave them exclusive access to his father's papers, which, again, David Davis agreed with and uh, thought that that was a good idea. Where did those papers end up? eventually and why well it's interesting so once Nicolay and Hay started going through the papers actually Robert never was able to to go through them and so in 1874 he had all of the papers transferred to Nicolay who at that time uh, he was working at the Supreme Court I believe he was the, the secretary of the Supreme Court and so he had all of the papers put in the vaults of the Supreme Court building and Robert told him and, and John Hay, he said, okay, use the papers, and if you see anything that you think I should know about, let me know. And so uh, Nicolay had those papers until he died in uh, 1901. And after he died, uh, John Hay, who at that time was Secretary of State under uh, President McKinley, 
he took possession of the papers and he put them in the State Department vaults. And they were there until he died in 1904, actually 1905. Finally, Robert Lincoln knew he had to get the papers. So he actually found a great newspaper article about how, you know, there was, I don't remember, four or five wagons sitting out front of the State Department. And uh, nobody would know anything was happening if you didn't know that the personal papers of Abraham Lincoln were about to be loaded on there and taken to Robert Lincoln's home in uh, Chicago. And so then Robert kept them in his possession for many years, and he would take them between his home in Chicago and his summer home in Vermont. He had a special Pullman car built solely for the purpose of carrying all the trunks of his father's papers, and he didn't let them out of his sight. He didn't let anybody take them after that. And then finally in uh, 1919, he deposited them in the Library of Congress, and in 1923 is when he officially donated them to the people of the United States, with the caveat that nobody could look at them until 1947. When you did your research, were you able to actually see the papers up close, or did you have to use uh, some kind of uh, digital form? <laughs> I I saw some of them up close, mostly, you know, at the Library of Congress, they, uh, well, of course, this was many years ago, and now it's all digital, but back then it was all in microfilm. And so, um, you know, if you're a serious scholar working on a serious project, they will let you look at things in person. And so I did look at some things, but, you know, most of the time I, I, I don't mind microfilm. Sometimes it's kind of fun, and you're just rolling and rolling, and then you find something and you have that eureka moment. So, um, But it is obviously much, much more interesting when you can hold something in your hand that, you know, Abraham Lincoln once held or wrote on or what have you. In your book on Robert Lincoln, you talk about your first draft being 1,200 manuscript pages. Yes. You talk about, I mean, and I went through it, you have uh, 126 pages of notes uh, in the back of the book, and you have 31 pages of a bibliography uh, mm -hmm. rundown. Uh, talk about that part of this process. And again, going back to a question I asked earlier, how much of this is you worrying about this Lincoln community saying, you better have this stuff backed up? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you know, I, you know, I'm a, by training, as I said, I'm a writer as an English major. I used to write a lot of poetry and fiction, and I've been a journalist for over 20 years. So I'm a, you know, I'm a writer and a storyteller, but I, I love history. And, um, but I especially love history that's correct and that's provable and so, um, you know, my writing style is is to write narratively, and, and all the reviews of my books have said that uh, they read like novels or like stories, not like academic books, which is what I strive for. However, I always like to show where I got my work, but you're absolutely correct. Um, in the Lincoln world, particularly, you know, with Mary and, a little, and with Robert, but especially when dealing with uh, his father, um, I footnoted everything because i wanted everyone i don't want anyone to to be able to point to my book and say well you know there's no footnote for that he's just making that up and so there there is sources and citations for every single statement i make in all of my books and yeah that is definitely part of the lincoln field is you know as i said cutthroat and everybody you know uh, everyone has opinions and everyone has their theories and so you know if you prove someone else's theory to be wrong or, or at least sh sh throw doubt on it, 
um, you definitely have to have the sources to back it up. But, but you know, I've just always loved. I don't know why I enjoy academic writing. I, well, I love the research. Um, you know, the the historian Barbara Tuckman once said, "Research is endlessly seductive, and writing is hard work." And that's true. And you know, after spending five years doing research, you know, I kind of wanted to show everyone that <laughs> this is what I got. This is where I got it. And uh, yes, I know what I'm talking about. One of the things that uh, you constantly mention in your book, um, both your books about uh, Mary Todd Lincoln and Robert Lincoln, is, I don't care what word you want to use, anxiety, melancholy, depression. <clears throat> and you talk about, of course, that uh, Abraham Lincoln and Mary Lincoln lost three boys. Uh, he, her husband was shot. Uh, she, as you know better than I do, it was put in an insane asylum uh, and had all kinds of problems. Um, what was your conclusion about all this? And did Robert Lincoln himself have anxiety and depression? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, you know, those things were, so anxiety, depression, mental illness were, were Todd family traits, certainly. Um, I, I found 14 members of the Todd family who had some form of mental illness. Some of them were committed, some of them committed suicide. Um, you know, Mary's father, Robert Todd, he also suffered from anxiety. Um, and, uh, you know, the Todd's also, uh, one historian said Mary Todd was a good hater. And uh, that's another Todd family trait. Her father was the same way. Robert Lincoln could definitely hold a grudge. But that anxiety is definitely easy to see in the Todd family. And Robert had a lot of anxiety. If you look through his papers, he had... Uh, I think two or three, um, you know, emotional breakdowns throughout his life. You know, one was when his brother Tad died. One was when his son died. Um, And so that definitely runs through the family. Now, the depression or melancholy that uh, we know Abraham Lincoln suffered from melancholy. That's well established. Um, Personally, I do not think he suffered from this, you know, debilitating, crushing depression, as some have said. There was even a book focused solely on that. Um, I disagree with that, um, but um, you know Mary did suffer severe depression. That was one of her many symptoms, and Robert did too. He again, if you go through his letters, there's a lot of periods where he had depression. But just like with Mary, you know, it was when his son died, or you know when his father died, or when um, you know Robert's youngest daughter, you know, she ran away with a uh, a football player. They eloped, came back home. Robert didn't know. He found out because a press uh, reporter knocked on his door and asked him about it. Things like that, you know, life experiences. Um, so Robert did have a lot of issues, but he was clearly able to control them. You know, he was a very Victorian-era guy, so he didn't let anybody see that side of him. You know, publicly, nobody knew that about him. But if you look at some of his letters, but only to his closest friends would he reveal those things that he was sad or having an emotional time or having a breakdown. Um, but, you know, Robert was an avid golfer and he, he credited the physical activity of golf with helping him stay physically fit as well as, you know, emotionally and mentally healthier by, by staying physically healthy. Who, um, have you, did you, during this process, did you read that you trusted, uh, of all the historians and did you, by the way, you, how much of the Hay Nicolay Many volumes series on Abraham Lincoln did you read? <laughs> oh, 
Oh, boy, you're going to make me admit I, I never read that cover to cover. I never read all 10 volumes of that, I have to admit. I've, I have looked through all 10 volumes, you know, looking through pages and reading certain chapters for various reasons, but I, but I haven't read it cover to cover, I'll have to admit that. Um, you know, there's a lot of great Lincoln, Lincoln scholars out there that um, I admire greatly. Um, you know, Wayne Temple, uh, he's kind of the dean of Lincoln scholars, uh, he is incredible. I think I'm sure he's forgotten more than just about anybody else in our field even knows today. Michael Berlingame is another one. His research is uh, indefatigable, and I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but you know he finds uh, things that no one else has found. He he's probably broken more new ground in Lincoln studies than anyone I can think of in modern times. Um, you know, there's some older historians like uh, Harry Pratt. I think was a great Lincoln scholar. Um, he did a lot of great stuff on some of the more obscure aspects of Lincoln than uh, than most others have done. Um, Anybody in history, historian in history that you've read you, you you don't trust, and would you point that out? <laughs> yeah, well, there's you know, um, well, in terms of yeah, Robert Lincoln, pretty much everybody gets it wrong because no one's ever studied him. So I don't I don't blame anybody for that. They use what they can. Um, you know, in terms of uh, Abraham Lincoln, there's a few that uh, I won't name because <laughs> I still need to work with them. But, you know, in Mary Lincoln, I will name a few. There's because uh, I make no secret of it. The, most people know about Mary Lincoln through through the book Mary Todd Lincoln, a biography by Jean Baker, which came out in the 1980s. And, um, you know, the first half of that book is, uh, is a wonderful look. It puts Mary in great context of who she was as a woman, a wife, a mother, um, but then once you get to the presidency and after, um, the book is just, um, it's a, it's a travesty. It's a tragedy of history because there's no footnotes. The ones there are, they don't, they have no proof of what she states in the book. Um, it's just full of fabrications. It's full of, um, stories that are not true about Mary or Robert. Um, and it's, it is the, it is the book that I warn everyone away from, um, but unfortunately, that is the book that everybody reads if they want to learn about Mary Lincoln, even to this day, even though it came out in 1987. So, um, yeah, I always tell people don't trust, you know, anything she writes. Um, and, you know, and she, of course, <laughs> doesn't like me because I say that. But, but you know, again, I say, hey, that's, you know, that's fine. You don't have to like me. But, you know, you can't point anywhere in any of my books where I don't have proof for what I say. Can, can you give us a specific on Jean Baker? And have you ever talked to her about this? You know, I never have. Um, she she calls me that amateur historian. Um, we were supposed to be on a panel together, but then it got canceled. Um, you know, and I mean, everything in her book about Robert Lincoln, everything she writes is wrong. Um, and basically, so the biggest thing is, um, you know, during Mary Lincoln's trial, Jean Baker says, well, Robert, he wanted to steal her money, and he bribed the judge and the jury to find her guilty. And uh, he, he paid everybody off. And, you know, he did this and he did that. And she has it all in this one big paragraph or two. And she footnotes at the end of a paragraph, not at the end of a sentence. And if you go to this one paragraph where she said he bribed the judge and the jury because he wanted to steal her money and all that stuff. And you go to her footnote and you go to the footnote and it's like one newspaper article. And you go to the newspaper article and it says the trial of Mary Lincoln started today. That there's nothing in there about Robert bribing anybody. But... So that's just one of, of many examples of things like that. I'm not the only Lincoln scholar who believes this by, by any stretch.
stretch of the imagination. I'm just I'm just the only one who actually says it out loud. <laughs> well, she she's an academic, and uh, yeah. and then she calls you an amateur, and you're constantly called an independent historian. What does that mean? You know, it's funny. I did not know what that meant um, until you know my first book came out, and um, I just was calling myself a historian, um, but. It's because I am not a I'm not affiliated with a university. I'm not a professor anywhere, and so that's why um, I guess just the norm of the industry is to to call me an independent historian because I'm not affiliated with a university. So, yeah, I just you know I just went with it. <laughs> I call myself uh, I just call myself a historian or and a, a freelance writer and a journalist. I just kind of do a little bit of everything, but um, but yeah, that's just what I was told. I had to I had to. I had to say about myself, independent historian. In your book, you talk about people re- saying about Robert that he was a snobby, aristocratic prig. Yes. Um, and you say it's a, an easy way for historians who dislike Robert to peg him as a snob. Uh, where does this come from? And w- anybody besides you like him? <laughs> oh boy, not too many. Yeah, there was one historian. His name was Steve Carson, and he had written an article or two about Robert um, way back in the '80s or '90s, I think. He liked Robert. Uh, he passed away some years ago, but um, no, nobody, nobody likes Robert. But um, th- there are many reasons for that. Um, one, as you said uh, earlier, I think, was that Robert was—you know—he was a corporate lawyer. He was a huge businessman. He was president or chairman of the board of you know, electric companies, uh, car companies, gas companies, banks, Pullman Railroad Company. He was a millionaire, multimillionaire, who lived in a 25-room Georgian Revival mansion. So immediately people don't like him because they think, oh, well, he's this big, rich prig, so unlike his father. His father never would have been that. His father would be embarrassed, and he'd be ashamed that his son turned out that way. Which is not true, because Abraham Lincoln was also a corporate lawyer for railroads. A lot of people don't realize he worked for railroads. At once, he got a $5,000 fee for working for the Illinois Central Railroad, which was the biggest fee ever had at that time. But um, So people just think, well, Robert was rich, his father was poor, so I don't like him because he's not like his father at all. Well, go back another to... Reason, go ahead. Yep, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, another reason is that Robert, he hated the press, hated them. Because he felt like they got everything wrong, and if they didn't get it wrong, they just made it up. And so he wouldn't talk to them, really. But because he wouldn't talk to them, the, the press would just make it up. <laughs> and they'd get it wrong because he wouldn't set them straight. And so, so then he wouldn't talk to them. So it was kind of this vicious circle of, um, of that. And so the press typically was not kind to him because he didn't give them what they wanted. And then, uh, honestly, the another probably probably the biggest reason nowadays people hate Robert is because of what Jean Baker wrote about him in her book. That's everybody knows about Robert from that book, just like everybody knows about Mary from that book. And everything about Robert in that book is incorrect. And uh, so that's another, that is probably the main reason today why people dislike him. Go back to um, the time around his attempt to get into Harvard and his father being invited to speak at Cooper Union and the idea that his father needed money to help him get into Philip Exeter, uh, all around that, plus talk about Robert Lincoln not going into the Army because his mother didn't want him to join the Army. 
and then eventually becoming an aide to U.S. Grant. I mean, mixed, that's all mixed up, but that part of his life, uh, please fill in the blanks. Sure. Yeah, very interesting. You know, Robert, um, his parents wanted him to have a great education. And back then in Illinois, you know, all of his friends, they went to Harvard, Yale, Brown University. And so Robert, uh, he tried to get into Harvard. He, he didn't pass the exam, so he went to Phillips Exeter for a year to prepare. And then he got in uh, the next year. And uh, Abraham Lincoln had to sign a bond. He had to have people sign a bond for payment so that Robert could go, which um, he did. He had... Um, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name right now. Uh, David Davis helped him with that. And then uh, Abraham Lincoln had a friend named Amos Tuck who lived in New Hampshire, who was a congressman at one point. And so Robert, I think Robert kind of had, uh, you know, he was the person, like, if you if you have an emergency, go see Mr. Tuck. Um, and so, yeah, Abraham Lincoln was happy to have his son go there. By, by that time, by 1860, Abraham Lincoln was making... Um, about $5,000 a year, I believe it was, in his law practice. And this was when the average person made about 500 a year. So Lincoln was very well off, so he could pay for Harvard. Um, and so you know, when Robert was actually, wasn't at Harvard, he was at Phillips Exeter, was when Abraham Lincoln went to speak at Cooper Union. And you know, by that time, after the Lincoln-Douglas debates, um, he was in great demand as a speaker. And he decided to go east on the advice of his friends, I, I think especially David Davis, because people in the East didn't know who Lincoln was. And so he got invited to Cooper Union, and he said, well, I, you know, I'd like to, but I don't know if my business, my law practice, my finances will allow it. And he ultimately was able to wrangle a bunch of talks. I, I don't remember how many he gave, probably, I don't know, five or eight around, you know, in different states too, Massachusetts and different places around Cooper Union so that he could get paid for all of them so that he could afford the trip. And then, of course, while he was there, he could visit his son, Robert, who was at uh, Phillips Exeter and hadn't seen him for many months. So so that's what Lincoln did. And, um, you know, he he and Robert got to see each other. Robert went to, I, I think he only went to one or two of his father's speeches because he had classes to go to. But that was um, <clears throat> a, a nice moment for them to spend some time together, just the two of them. Um, but, um, but also, you know, when Robert, when the war broke out, Robert was at Harvard and he immediately wanted to join the Union Army, immediately wanted to enlist. And his parents did not let him. And that was because Mary was, was terrified that Robert would die because, you know, their son Eddie had died in 1850 when he was four. Mary could not, she could not handle death at all. You know, also when Eddie died, her father died the same year and her grandmother died. And so those were a, a significant blow to her emotionally and mentally. And so Mary could not stand the thought of Robert being killed. And Abraham Lincoln, he, he was all for Robert joining. Uh, Lincoln had been in the Black Hawk War. He had enlisted in that. And, of course, politically, you know, for the president's son not to join the army is humiliating and embarrassing. But Lincoln, you know, he um, acquiesced to his wife because he knew how upset she was. And Robert was furious. But uh, basically every year he would approach his father and say, can I join the army? So he'd say no. Now Mary, you know, she, when people would criticize her or her husband or her son, she would always say, 
well, you know, uh, I have no problem with Robert joining the army, but I, I maintain that an educated man can serve his country better than an ignoramus. And so as soon as he graduates from college, he will be joining the army. But, of course, you know, people didn't care. Newspapers just criticized Abraham Lincoln. They criticized Robert, called him a coward. You know, a senator came up to Mary and said, I have three sons, and they're all in the army, and uh, I'm happy for, to make the sacrifice. But Mary was, you know, in that way, she was also a very selfish woman. And so when, when Robert graduated college, he said, all right, I have graduated. I'm joining the army. And uh, by that time, Willie had died. He died in 1862. So now Mary was really not going to allow that. And so um, Abraham Lincoln would not allow Robert to join. And so he stayed at Harvard, and he did a year of law school. And then by early 65, it was obvious that the war was about to be won. The war was about to be over. So Lincoln convinced his wife to let him, let Robert join up. But Lincoln, you know, he wasn't going to let him be, you know, in the trenches with the troops. So he wrote a letter to uh, General Grant and said, can, um, can my son join your official family on your staff in some, in some nominal post? And you don't have to pay him. I will pay all of his expenses. I will pay his salary. And Grant responded. He said, of course, I'd love to have him. You know, don't worry about it. You know, he'll be an assistant adjutant general of volunteers, and, and he'll be paid just like anybody else. And so Robert, um, you know, he was in the Army for um, about two months or so, two or three months, and I found a couple of letters. I think there's two letters or really one and a half that survive. There was one letter he wrote to John Hay while he was sitting on picket duty talking about how boring it is, and uh, he was writing about girls, you know, say hi to so-and-so for me, you know, typical, you know, uh, typical young man at that time. And um, so Robert was, um, you know, he was at City Point, Mostly he was kind of Grant's, he was always with Grant. Whenever his father visited the front, Robert was his father's personal you know, personal guide, secretary, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Robert was present at the surrender of, of uh, General Lee at Appomattox, too. And later in life, he was eventually the, the only living person who was present at the surrender during the last couple of years of his life. You, you say that um, the... the, the centennial of of um, Abraham Lincoln's birth 1909 was a turning point in Robert's life mm-hmm. explain yeah the centennial of his father's birth in 1909 was uh, a huge event nationwide I don't know if we could really appreciate it today um, there's a wonderful book that I recommend to people um, Abraham Lincoln and the Forge of National Memory by um, Barry Schwartz was his name, and uh, it's a. But it that book really shows you how the entire country was infected with the celebration of Lincoln's 100-year birthday, and it was really, as Schwartz shows, said at that point Lincoln was not considered the greatest president. George Washington was. Lincoln was one of the greats, but after 1909, that's when Lincoln became the greatest, because there were celebrations for him for his birthday all over the country. But for Robert Lincoln, if you can imagine this, he's the only surviving son of Lincoln. Um, and also by 1909, Robert's own son was dead. Robert had two daughters, but you know, back then they didn't really care that he had daughters. So Robert's the only male Lincoln left. And so every day, I mean, it, Robert's entire life was like this, but 1909 was the worst, where every day he would receive letters, telegrams, visitors, 
everyone just wanting something from him. You know, do you have any souvenirs of your father? Can you clip me his signature? I wrote a book. Can you read it? I, I painted a sculpture, or I painted a painting. Can you give me your opinion? I'm going to do a sculpture. Can you come look at it? Can you come visit? Can you come talk? It's just endless day after day. And he would get 10, 20, 30, 100 of those a day especially by 1909, and everybody wanted him to come and speak, or they wanted him to talk about his father. And Robert's policy at that time was that, uh, for his whole life, was that he never spoke about his father. He decided as a young man, he said, I can either live my life as my father's son and do nothing but talk about him, or I can live my own life. And he decided to live his own life. So he never spoke, never wrote, nothing. 1909, he changed it up a little bit. He agreed to attend the ceremony of the birth of his father in Hodgenville, Kentucky, which is where Abraham Lincoln was born. And so Robert was there, which was a very big deal. And actually, Robert um, passed out from heat stroke because he was, he was getting up there in years at that time. So, um, but yeah, 1909 was a tough year for Robert. Plus, you know, Robert, he never inserted himself into any of the books or anything written about his father, although he did have opinions. But as he got older, he started getting angrier <laughs> about some of the books and things that were written. And, you know, around 1909, there's just books everywhere. And, and he started, you know, telling people a little bit of things of what he did or didn't like in certain books um, because he was getting a little little ornery in his old age. But, uh yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what he went through in 1909, just relentlessly getting badgered every day by people who want to know about his father. They don't care about him. They just want to know about his father. Speaking of books, I got your book from the Euclid Public Library in Euclid, Ohio. It was used, and I got it through the Internet. Uh, can people still buy your book? It's nine years old, but is it still available? It absolutely is. Um, yes, it is available on Amazon or uh, it's published by Southern Illinois University Press. You can order it through there. And actually, uh, if you don't mind my saying, because holidays are coming up, you can actually get my book at 40% off on SIU Press website if you just type in the code HOLIDAY in all caps. So, yeah, it's only available in hardcover. Um, it, it still hasn't come out in paperback, I guess, I guess because it's selling so well that uh, <laughs> they decided not to do that yet. Um, so, yeah, all of my books are available um, online uh, Amazon, SIU Press. Um, yeah, I'm proud that a lot of libraries carry it as well. But, but of course, you know, as an author, always, always hope people will buy it. And I always tell people, I learned this from another historian once. He said, you always tell people, buy two. One to own, one to loan, which <laughs> I always thought was great advice. <laughs> what do you do now to make your, your, your living? Uh, well, you know, I, I was a, a journalist for many years. I was the... Uh, managing editor of a couple of community newspapers here around Syracuse, New York. Um, and then I was the managing editor at a marketing company for a couple of years. And I was the, so my main job, I was the editor of International Musician Magazine, which was the official publication of the American Federation of Musicians. And I left that um, yeah, six or eight months ago. And so now I'm um, freelancing. I've actually started my own music magazine um, but, you know, throughout everything that I've done, I've always been a freelance writer. So I I just try to write articles. I, I just had an article published in um, Smithsonian Magazine about a fascinating thing called the hairy eagle. It was a, a wreath made of human hair, of Lincoln's hair. Uh, his cabinet members, his vice president, you know, I don't know, 20-something senators, his wife, 
uh, wives of cabinet members. It's it's a completely unique, unbelievable um, item that uh, is actually uh, it's housed here in Syracuse in the Onondaga Historical Association. And uh, so I wrote about that, um, which was a big deal for me to get it into Smithsonian, which is a wonderful magazine. And um, so I'm writing articles. I've got a couple more coming, um, and then I'm trying to decide what uh, what my next book will be. I don't know if I want to keep on the Lincoln train or jump over to a different uh, different topic just to mix it up. You tell a story, and this will we'll close this down. But you tell a story about a statue um, that Robert Lincoln played a role in preventing it uh, from being used. What's that story? Yeah, that was the uh, the Taft statue. In uh, They wanted to put it in Cincinnati. And it was um, the brother of President Taft who had made the statue, or who had commissioned the statue, not made it. And, uh, you know, it was supposed to honor Abraham Lincoln. And what he had done was he went, the, the artist, um, William, I think his name was William Saunders, um, I think, Sorry, it's been a while since I <laughs> did that research. Uh, the artist, anyway, I remember he um, he went to rural Kentucky to find a man who approximated Abraham Lincoln's build, who had lived his his entire life working in the fields and the prairies. And so he found this man, and he used this man as a model for the statue. And the statue is just a horrible abomination. Um, if you look at it, it's got huge feet, huge hands, uh, this huge Adam's apple, this really, you know, sloughing posture. He's got his his hands are folded across his stomach, and it looks like he has a stomach ache. It's just, it's horrible. And and the part of it, the, the point of it is to make Abraham Lincoln look, you know, common, every man, uh, almost feral, you know, just of the earth, of a backwoods earthiness. Um, but it, it fails on multiple levels. But when Robert Lincoln heard about that and saw that statue, he was incensed. And that was actually the only time he ever, he actually did public battle to get, to prevent that statue from being placed because he thought it was such an aberration. And so he, um, you know, he, of course, he had millions of friends. So he had a lot of friends to help him. He wrote articles um, in art magazines. He gave interviews in newspapers. And he wrote all of his friends who were politicians to get them on his side to prevent this from occurring. Um, and in the end, he was successful. They they did not use that. Instead, they used, uh, I think it was a replica of the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. that was done by Daniel Chester French, which Robert thought was one of the greatest statues ever made of his father. And so, yeah, he thwarted that statue. And in the end, the artist got it put in Manchester, England, for some reason I'm not recalling. So the statue is, is there. I believe it's still there, if anybody wants to see it. But if you, you, know, if you like, type into a web search for um, you know, Taft statue or ugly Lincoln statue or something, you can see it. And it's, it's pretty horrible. And I think Robert did the right thing. You know, he took some flack for making his opinion known and for actively trying to stop it from getting put up. But, uh, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're a son and someone makes a hideous statue of your father that makes him look like a fool. Um, you know, I think, I think most of us would probably try to do the same thing. Robert Todd Lincoln died on July 26, 1926. Our guest has been Jason Emerson. 
He's written a number of books about Mary Todd Lincoln and then the biography of Robert Todd Lincoln called Giant in the Shadows. And we thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.